New Testament scripture reading before the sermon comes from 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, who at the baptism of Jesus in the river Jordan did proclaim him your beloved son and anoint him with the Holy Spirit, grant that all who are baptized into his name may keep the covenant they have made and boldly confess him as Lord and Savior who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God in glory everlasting. Amen. Our sermon text for this evening comes from the book of Nahum in the Old Testament. That's about as much help as I can give you at this time. If you want to read it in your worship order, it's printed for you. If you are adventurous and want to look for it in your copy of the Bible, uh, begin searching now. It's a small book, probably tucked away in a place that you haven't been for a while. But believe me, the book of Nahum is there. And we will cover the entire first chapter of the book of Nahum this evening. Our goal is not to look at every jot and tittle. Our goal is to give an overview of Nahum chapter 1, but we want to look at Nahum 1 and see what Nahum has to tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ. What, if anything, does Nahum have to do with the gospel of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ? And I think you will find that as every other book in the scriptures, even the book of Nahum says something about Jesus. In his commentary, little booklet on the book of Nahum, called Severe Compassion, an author says, The prophet Nahum spoke of the Christ 640 years before the Incarnation. 2,000 years after Jesus came, we stand guilty of not recognizing the gospel pronouncement made by Nahum, who was among those who preached that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead 
and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Dr. Cook does a great job in this book of explaining how Nahum points the reader to the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully, uh, as I gain help from him and other sources and through prayer and study together, we will be able to see Christ revealed to us in the book of Nahum. Now, the reason we are in the book of Nahum is for two reasons. The first one is because in one of our recent session and deacon meetings, Bo slipped a little joke in there suggesting that in our preaching schedule, the book of Nahum would be the next book that we would cover. And so I took that as a challenge and thought, maybe we should do Nahum. On the other hand, in a more serious note, it seems like the logical follow-up to the book of Jonah, where we saw Jonah going to the city of Nineveh and crying out against it, and God showed mercy to the city of Nineveh. Nahum picks up where Jonah left off, but it's several decades later. And what we see happening in Nineveh is that the people of Nineveh have fallen back into their old ways. They have apostatized from their repentance and faith in God. And now they have become even worse than ever before. And Nahum is given a vision from the Lord. And he writes in this book what God intends to do in order to bring about judgment upon the city of Nineveh and upon the nation of Assyria. The book begins with Nahum saying that this is an oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The word oracle in Hebrew means something like burden or weight. This is something that is heavy on Nahum's mind. And it is a vision that is given to a man whose name means compassion or comfort, but he happens to be from a place that means severity. And so throughout the book of Nahum, we find two things at work, both the compassion of God and the severity of God. This is what the Apostle Paul meant in Romans 11 when he said, consider both the kindness and the severity of God, severity to those who do not believe, but kindness to those who do. This is what the book of Nahum is about, is God's dealing with Nineveh primarily, but then we learn beyond that, that this is the way God deals with the world, a world that lives in rebellion against him. At this stage of of history, the Assyrians have reached their peak level. They are at the prime of their existence. They are at full strength, as we learn in Nahum 1. They have experienced decades of prosperity and peace because of their military exploits. They were known to be a vicious people as they conquered nations and tribes and kingdoms. They have fallen back into their old ways. Violence marks their path. They're characterized as being a brutal people. And the reason God is speaking His judgment against Nineveh and against Assyria is because what Nineveh and Assyria have done to God's people. We learned in Jonah's time that the Assyrians were constantly afflicting the people of Samaria, the people of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. 
You fast forward a few decades and find that they have eventually consumed and devoured Samaria and then they afflicted the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. God's people have been abused by the, Samaria, by the Assyrians. And all of this started because the kings of Israel did wicked in the eyes of God. They did wicked in the sight of the Lord and led God's people into rebellion, led them into idolatry. What began as this sort of flirtatious relationship with Assyria, where the kings wanted to make trade deals and peace treaties, ended up becoming this all-consuming relationship where the people of God were infatuated with the Assyrians and broke covenant with God and became known as an adulterous and idolatrous people. If you want to read some graphic description of what God's people were up to in those days, go to Ezekiel 23. I will not take the time to read it here. Uh, The graphic description would embarrass and cause most of us to blush. But in a nutshell, what you learn is that God's people had become victims of this sexually abusive relationship with Assyria. By the time we get to the book of Nahum, God reveals himself as a jealous husband who has seen his wife go astray and abandon him and break covenant. And what you find in Nahum chapter 1 is a description of God's jealous love for his people. He had said to his people from the beginning that the Lord God, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And now in Nahum, we see that God does not let his wife get away so easily. He goes after her in order to bring her back, to reconcile with her, and to save their covenant union, to save their marriage. That's the backstory of the book of Nahum. In the book of Nahum, we see a vision of God's fierce love for his people, a vision of Christ's fierce love for his church. It shows what the Lord, whose name is Jealous, will do to the enemies of his beloved wife. As the book of Proverbs says, jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. And in the book of Nahum, this is what we see. God in His jealous love moving into Assyria to lay hold of His wife and rescue her, deliver her from evil, and destroy the one who has done evil against her. So again, be prepared to see both the comfort and the severity of God. Comfort towards those who love Him, severity towards those who do not. This is a vision of God's jealous love for you. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of Nahum chapter 1. The Word of God says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. 
He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And God's people say, you may be seated. The vision of the Lord in Nahum is the vision of a God who is jealous, avenging, wrathful. It is the vision of a God who comes to destroy, to demolish. This is not the vision that most people want to hear. In postmodern America, this is not the vision that most people have in their minds when they think of God. But this is the vision granted to us by God. This is the vision that God has revealed of Himself to His prophet Moses and to Jonah. When Moses asked God to reveal His glory, God came and proclaimed His name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is the message that Jonah centered on in Jonah 4 in Nineveh. That's what he pointed to and said, this is why I didn't want to come to Nineveh. I knew that this is who you are. This is how you revealed yourself. And so Jonah emphasized God's mercy. But God revealed more of his glory to Moses than that. He went on to say, Who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And this is where Nahum picks up and echoes the story that he has heard from long ago. And he emphasizes here God's anger and justice and vengeance. And as the vision shows, 
God draws near to Nineveh and He will show them no mercy and He will no longer clear the guilty anymore. God reveals Himself in these graphic terms of jealousy and vengeance and wrath and anger and power. God is warning Nineveh that He is coming to put things right, that there will be a reckoning. Now, it doesn't matter to me who you are, what you believe, how you live, where you've been. This vision, this kind of vision, should put the fear of God in your heart and should move you to examine your own life and move you to confess your sins and repent of them. Do not deceive yourself. Do not say in your hearts, well, that's God's vision to Nineveh. I didn't live in Nineveh. I'm not a part of Nineveh. Now I'm safe. God doesn't relate to our world in this way. I remind you of what the Apostle Paul said when he spoke to a group of philosophers who were thinking along these lines that God overlooked the time of ignorance in the past. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He has given assurance of this day of judgment by raising Him from the dead. The proof, the evidence that God will judge the world through Jesus Christ is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God keeps His word. And the Scriptures make clear to us that God will come to judge the living and the dead. He comes to judge Assyria. He comes to judge America. He comes to judge you and me. He comes to judge our communities. We must all appear before the judgment seat of the Lord and give a full account for what we have done in this life. And in the next life, He will give to each one of us according to what we have done. If any of us doubt that God will keep His Word, if any of us wonder if God has the right to even bring judgment, the prophet Nahum points us back to salvation history. And he reminds us of God's salvific works in space-time history. I'll give you two examples. In verse 4 it says, He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. These are echoes of what Yahweh has done in delivering His people, both from Egypt and from the wasteland into the promised land. Yahweh has the right and the responsibility to judge the world in justice because He has delivered His people and destroyed His enemies. He has proven Himself faithful again and again and again. So in this reference, we see that God delivered His people from Egypt at the Red Sea. He sent the wind that opened the sea and dried the pathway through it. He sent the cloud that sheltered the people as they passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses. 
He delivered his people from the wilderness into the promised land at the Jordan River. After 40 years of bearing with his people, 40 years of abiding with them while they wandered in the wasteland, finally he rolls back the river at flood stage and his people cross the Jordan River on dry ground and enter the promised land just as he said they would. God has proven himself faithful again and again. And he proves himself faithful even when his people prove themselves to be unfaithful. Just like his wife in the book of Nahum who has gone off to be with Assyria. God says just as he destroyed Egypt, just as he destroyed the Canaanites, so he will destroy Nineveh and Assyria in order to deliver his people from evil. No wonder Nahum said this is a burden. This is an oracle. This is weight, heavy. The threat of God's judgment is bad news for God's enemies. And maybe some of you feel that it's bad news for you. But for all who are in Christ and have turned from their sins and put their trust in the Lord, this promise and threat of God's judgment is good news for the people of God. Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 2 that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. In other words, God knows how to distinguish between those who are His people and those who are not. And I mention all of this to urge you with all your heart to guard against this common popular heresy that floats around in various churches that says that the God of the Old Testament was mean-spirited. He was a mean God. But the God of the New Testament is sweet and kind, and we prefer the God of the New Testament. Now that's heresy. For the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is one and the same. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And to give you evidence of that, I reference 2 Thessalonians 1. Compare this with what you heard from Nahum 1. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on the day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, everyone who reads Nahum recognizes the difficulty of trying to figure out from text to text, verse to verse, to whom God is speaking. Is He speaking to Assyria? Or is He speaking to Judah? Is He speaking to Nineveh? Or is He speaking to His people? What's going on here? Well, to make things as simple as possible for you, it's impossible to tell in English, but when you read back through it, know this, that... When God speaks to His enemies, He uses masculine pronouns in Hebrew. And when He speaks to His 
His beloved, he, spe- he uses feminine pronouns in Hebrew. You can't see it in English. Trust me on that. But it, I mention it simply to confirm what I said at the outset. That this is a vision of God's fierce love for His people. It shows us what the Lord, whose name is Jealous, does to the adversaries of His beloved wife. And so the chapter breaks down in this way. There are bits of bad news for the adversaries and there are bits of good news for God's beloved. And the bad news is that God comes as a jealous husband to destroy, to deliver his wife. There's a curse motif there. He talks about entangled thorns and dry stubble being the result of his judgment. And the Lord gives in verse 14 this emphatic statement, no more shall your name be perpetuated. In other words, no more propaganda, no more commercials, no more advertisements about how great you are. You are done. Your idols are destroyed. I will make a grave for you are vile. In other words, God is putting an end to his enemies. It's bad news for them. It's the bad news of a demolition that describes Massive destruction and darkness and death. But there's good news embedded in all of that for the people of God. In that comes deliverance from this demolition. Verse 7 says that this vision of Yahweh as a jealous husband is good news for all who turn and trust in Him. Why? Because He is a refuge for them. He is a safe place for them. He does good to them, and He is good for them. Verse 15 highlights the good news. Because the prophet Nahum comes as a messenger. And the people are to look out, and they see this messenger running towards them. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who preach the gospel. What is the gospel here? What is the gospel in the hearing of the people? The gospel is that God is coming to judge Nineveh. That God is coming to deliver His people. This is the good news. And when this good news comes about, when this message of deliverance occurs, there will be liberty and victory for the people of God. They will come back and worship and serve Him in their land. They will keep the festivals. So the destruction of Nineveh might seem cold-blooded and cruel to postmodern folks who do not know the Lord, but we must see it for what it truly is. It is a demonstration of the character of God. God who is holy. God who is just. God who is light. God who is love. It's this vision that shows us something of God's compassion and severity. It's this vision that moves us to fear God and it's The fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom. So in this vision of the destruction of Nineveh, we get not just a story about Nineveh's end, but we also learn that this is how God deals with all of His enemies. Of whatever city, whatever nation, and whatever point in human history. This is how God deals with the world, the flesh, and the devil. This, we might say that this is a symbolic representation of the end of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So don't get caught up in thinking, oh, this is only, that was then. Seal it off in space-time history. Now, there's no 
bearing on our life. Now, we learn something from this about the gospel of Jesus. And this is where we shift gears and ask the question that we should ask always in reading the scriptures. What does this burden, what does this vision have to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what does it have to do with us? Well, as we've seen, on the one hand, this vision of Nahum was fulfilled in space-time history with the destruction of Nineveh and the collapse of the Assyrian Empire and the deliverance of Judah being brought back to their homeland. All of that happened in space-time history. It really and truly happened. And yet, we also know that the Scriptures all point to Jesus. They tell us something about the person and work of Christ. And we see that when Christ came into the world, even visions like this are fulfilled in more full and truer and better ways through His person and work. We learn in the New Testament that God came into the world to save sinners, to save His people in the person and work of Jesus at the cross. And if you were to go back through Nahum chapter 1 and look for all of the references, the echoes, the hints of what Christ did, you will find that the person and work of Jesus is a fulfillment even of the prophecy, the vision of Nahum 1. Let me show you how. At the cross, God shook the world. He darkened the sun. He tore down walls. He burst apart chains. He pulled stars down from the sky. He cut down idols. He split rocks. At the cross, the wrath and vengeance and justice of God were poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ because He bore the sins of the world. At the cross, the guilty were cleared as innocent and the innocent was condemned as guilty. At the cross, God judged the world. He judged sin, the flesh, and the devil in Christ. At the cross, all of our little Ninevehs, the little Ninevehs of our hearts were destroyed through the death of the God-man. At the cross, the love of God was made manifest among us in that God sent His Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. At the cross, God's jealous love for His people is displayed with all of the passion of a lover for His beloved. We see that at the cross, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. At the cross, God disarmed the principalities and the powers in Christ. And if the rulers of this world had understood the mystery of God's compassion and the mystery of God's severity, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't realize that at the cross they would be executing their own demise and undoing. What was bad news for the enemies of God at the cross 
is good news for his friends. The death of Jesus Christ means the destruction of our enemies. It means our deliverance from sin, the flesh, and the devil. In other words, at the cross, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we see God accomplishing all that he said he would accomplish, even in the vision of Nahum, in the gospel of Nahum. And that is why we can say, as Nahum said, Behold upon the mountains, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news, who publish peace. Why are their feet beautiful? Because they are running to you. They are coming at you with the life-giving Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the Word of Christ. How beautiful on the mountains are those who bring us the gospel of grace. It's also why we can echo what prophets and apostles have said. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Let them confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Let them believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Let them call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Let them keep the feast and fulfill their vows. Let them come to the table and offer their gifts. For never again shall Belial pass through you. Never again shall the serpent, the devil, the accuser pass through you. Why? For he has been utterly cut off at the cross. In Nahum 1, interesting passage, God promises that he will pursue his enemies into the darkness. And it was at the cross that God in Christ pursued his enemies into the darkness. Into the darkness of death. Into the darkness of the grave. And he pursued them to their bitter end. Yes, at the cross we have the death of death in the death of Christ. And that is good news indeed. So you don't live in Nineveh, but you live in a world that is very much like Nineveh. And you live in a world that is under the threat of God's judgment, even on this night. We will confess in just a moment that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is seated at the right hand of God. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And those are not empty words. It's a confession of our faith. We believe it. We believe it to be right. We believe it to be good. And when he comes to judge the living and the dead, enemies will be destroyed and friends will be delivered, both for the glory of God and the good of the world.